Welcome to Women of Character. This podcast is brought to you by the TurkNet Leadership Group. I'm Ann Quiello, a senior consultant at TurkNet and an executive coach. In our podcast series, I'll be exploring how women build and sustain character in all kinds of challenging contexts. The challenges, for example, that women face in the workplace during the pandemic, ongoing issues of equality and inclusion, letting go of self-limiting beliefs and more. We're gonna get their insights to how they persevered and how they beat the odds and busted barriers. Well, speaking of busting barriers, today I'm excited to chat with uh, Vicki Ascara. She's the former executive vice president and chief marketing officer at Delta Airlines former CEO of Feeding America, which is the second largest charity in the U.S., and most recently, the former global CEO of Opportunity International, which offers financial solutions to the poorest of the poor all around the world. Currently, Vicki is a senior advisor and executive coach for the Boston Consulting Group based out of Chicago. And it's a special honor for me, as Vicki and I worked together for many years at Delta. I really respected Vicki then, and I still do for her self-confidence, her love for people, and an amazing understanding of the business, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. And of course, what I like to say for her humor. (laughs) (laughs) There it is, that laughter that brightens so many, many days. So Vicki, thank you for joining me. It's so great to be with you, Anne, again. Yeah, this is fantastic. So I'm going to start with talking about being the first woman to enter the all-male C-suite at Delta, and at the time became the highest ranking woman in aviation. What was that experience like? So I would begin by saying it was very humbling. And I worked, as you know, from an entry-level position as a flight attendant. I had 15 jobs at Delta before I was promoted to the C-suite. And so it was very humbling. And then I learned quickly, I'd sat on a board that had all men, which gave me some experience. And I learned that, you know, you can't fight every battle. You have to really line up the things that are most important to the organization, to its people, its constituents, and really go after those things. But being a minority in a group of majority, you cannot voice your opinion every single time. So I really did fight for things that I greatly believed in that would make the company and our people better. And I laid back when I needed to. So those are a couple of things. And, and then I would, I would end this part of the conversation by saying it may be an even more fierce believer that women need to be in boardrooms, they need to be in executive offices, they need to be CEOs, they need to be leaders a lot more than we're leading today. So it gave me fire in the belly to to promote uh, women around me and to get more women in the C-suite at Delta Mm -hmm. and, and beyond. Yeah, it sounds like you really clarified your mission around that. I did give a lot of thought to it. And you know, I'm a big believer in 90-day plans. And so that was a part of my 90-day plan. Interesting. Well, as you look back on that experience, uh, what would you say was your greatest accomplishment? So, you know, I had many, 
but I would say the greatest and the thing I'm most proud of is how the team handled the events of 9-11. It was a really tough couple of years, but the way we handled the events when we found out that we had been attacked as a country, we went right into the operations control center. We were the first airline that sat all the airplanes down. We went right into action with developing new security uh, around the globe. Um, we quickly, quickly communicated with our people. And then our CEO led the airline industry in getting $14 billion for airlines to keep running. And all of that happened within a two-week period. Can you imagine Congress? And this is not a political statement, but getting them to agree and the president to sign off in two weeks. So I have to say, living through that and really actively communicating with our employee group, which was something that I was asked to do because I'd been there a long time, was really my proudest achievement. We got through it. Look at Delta today. They just received the JD Power Award. They're doing beautifully. And, um, and you know, I just love still being a part of the Delta team because you and I will always be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that does bring back some pride-filled moments. I recall getting in touch with, I think we had at least 11,000 flight attendants sprinkled all over the world. Yep. And we, within 24 hours, we had been in touch with every single crew Yep. and had set up conference calls so they could hear from you and other leaders. It was a remarkable, remarkable time. Well, Vicki, you never have seemed to lack self-confidence or courage or boldness, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) But I sometimes find that women will hold themselves back because they lack confidence in their abilities or themselves. How important has self-confidence been to your your success as a leader? So I would say it's, it's really been a centerpiece of my achievement. When I left the in-flight service group and was asked by, at the time, the chief marketing officer, Bob Coggin, to go over for a 90-day assignment and take a look at what was happening with our call centers, you know, I said, Bob, I don't, I don't know anything about call centers. And he said, it's not about understanding what call centers are about. It's about understanding leadership and how to lead. And at the time, we were going through a a cost-cutting exercise to try to get our costs in line with competition. And so, you know, and I just dove into that job. I went around, we had at the time 28 centers. I, I visited every one in three months. I met with the leaders in the call centers and I let them develop a plan that got the cost out that we were set to get out. I didn't develop the plan. I let Uh, a self-directed team developed the plan. And it included everything from tiering their their pay to offering early outs with good benefits to reducing the number of centers that we had down to eight. And the reason I say, you know, I just dive into it because that was the big dive for me. And then I dove into several other opportunities. But that year we had the Olympics in Atlanta And there were 100 opportunities for us to vote on people that could run the Olympic torch. And 
you know, I, I'm humbled and proud to say that the call center employees voted me to run the Olympic torch as the spirit of Delta. Wow. Wow. You know, as you describe Bob Coggin asking you to go over to the call centers and so on, <laughs> it reminds me, I heard this morning, Ellen Burstyn, who's a famous American actress, and she said that, you know, by going and doing the thing that you fear, courage will follow. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like going and doing the thing that you might have feared, courage followed, and you were acknowledged and recognized for that um, by, by the people in that organization. Well, and, a fun, and you know, a funny, a funny kind of side note to the story is I went over, and I won't name any names because it's not necessary, but I went over and asked the head of the call centers if I could help her. And she put me in an office and that I couldn't get myself into with the desk in there. I couldn't fit in there. So I thought, to heck with this, I'll just go on. I'll go out with the people and I'll see what's going on, really. And that, I think, has been also the center of success for me is I've never viewed myself above uh, in anyone else. I've always viewed myself as one of the group. And I think that has made life real for the people that I've worked with and certainly made life really real and meaningful for me. Mm. Yeah, you do have a strong sense of values and you've always been aligned with those values with your actions, which is something else that I've always admired. And so always being grounded, having time for others and, and so on. So having that balance of self-confidence, but with humility. So the question I have though, is how, how have you been able to find that sweet spot between confidence and arrogance? Because in your, I mean, in the executive roles that you have held, it's very possible you know, to feel overly confident, but you haven't, you haven't succumbed to that. So how did you find that sweet spot? How do you keep it? So, you know, I think for most of us, I was raised in a home and with a dad that was really so smart and so humble and so great to be around everyone. Our house was always filled with people that really just wanted to be around him so I learned it at an early age and learned it from watching him and his ability to influence people through that humility. And, and he was certainly intelligent, but he never made people feel inferior to him. And there's this really lovely quote that I want to share with the, our audience and with you, which says, life is amazing and then it's awful. And then it's amazing again. And in between the amazing and the awful, it's ordinary and mundane and routine. So breathe in the amazing, hold, hold on through the awful and relax and exhale during the, the ordinary. That's mm -hmm. just living, heartbreaking, soul healing, amazing, awful, ordinary life. And it's breathtakingly <laughs> beautiful. Wow. Where did you find that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll have to look it up. But it's so true. I mean, life is all of those things. And I think 
keeping balance is mm -hmm. never taking the highs too seriously, never taking the lows too seriously, knowing that you're going to go in and out. And most of your life is just going to be in the middle. And so I think that is a really great lesson in life. And life is beautiful, even with all the, the ups and downs. It's a beautiful thing to experience. And we're really fortunate. Yes, yes, that is beautiful. Well, I want to change subjects. Uh, and I want to ask, uh, how did you move from then commercial aviation into nonprofit leadership, uh, a really different path altogether? So I left Delta in 2000, at the end of 2004, after 30 years. And I took what was supposed to be a year off. And the mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, asked if I would come and help her with a couple of projects. And at the time, she was not responsible for education in Atlanta, but she visited all of the Atlanta senior classes. And at the time, the graduation rate was below 50%. And she said, graduate, go to college, get a job, go to technical school, I'll help you. Here's my phone number. And I'll, you know, if you need it, I'll write you a check to get you into college. So we got back in her car and she handed me her phone and she said, and it, of course it started ringing off the hook and the graduation rate, I always forget this, was over 90% of that at the end of that year. And I said, you know, Mayor, why are you doing this? And she said, because I believe in the power of what one person can do, whether it's the mayor of Atlanta or chief marketing officer of Delta. And when are you going to do something really good with your life? And I was like, wow, you know, I think I've done some good things. She said, but you know, you're, you've got some great skills and when are you going to take those skills and really help other people? And she said something that, that really kind of left me in my tracks, especially as a female. She said, and how much money is enough money? And I thought, you know, I have enough money to be comfortable. I'm not wealthy, but if I use my investments wisely and don't tap into them, I'm going to be fine. And so that gave me the freedom and to really look at what what my interests were before I even joined Delta. I joined the Peace Corps. I was accepted. I really wanted to help people. And so it was like a full circle for me. And that's when I started interviewing for um, jobs at like Feeding America and other jobs where people are in need of assistance and not necessarily in need of a hand up, they're in need of a handout. So I had the, the great honor of serving as CEO of Feeding America for six and a half years, had a wonderful team. We did help a lot of senior citizens, a lot of single mothers that are working with children and children eat healthier food and have enough to get by on and lift themselves out of poverty. So so that, that's how it happened. It all happened with a conversation about someone challenging me to think differently. And so I've, I've taken that. I, you know, I look at my life in chapters and I, I've got a couple of chapters left. And um, anyhow, I just think we sometimes 
put ourselves in a box and, you know, leaving Atlanta was hard. I didn't know anyone in Chicago, but Feeding America was here. So I remember my priest said, why are you doing this? And I said, you know, because I really want to learn and I want a new adventure. So I'm so glad that I have had the opportunity to learn from all sectors because I've learned something new and different and meaningful for, from all sectors. Mm-hmm. And again, it seems that you are living according to your values yeah. and uh, coming full circle. Um, that value was deep inside and you were able to live according to that value. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, I remember you telling me that how many trips you've made back and forth to Africa. <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what, what was the number? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is, well, I went to Africa for Opportunity International. Uh, I went 12 times in a year. Wow. One time I went to pick up a very large check from the MasterCard Foundation. And we were serving women that primarily are living on less than $2 a day. So I just started the job and I found out that I had breast cancer. And there's a really hilarious story and I'll tell it. I had just had a mastectomy. They were going to begin chemo. And you know, I, I was debating with my oncologist I said, I'm going to Italy to pick up this check as soon as in a week. And this is a week after I just had major surgery. And he said, you're not going. And I said, oh, I'm, I am going. And he said, you're not going. So finally he said, okay, go. If the tubes are clear, you can go. So the tubes are clear. I went and picked up the check and the head of the MasterCard Foundation said, I can't believe you're here. And I said, you know, I'm just... I'm here because I'm, you know, we're thrilled that MasterCard thinks so much of us and our work and talk about, talk about learning a lot from women, you know, women that are living on less than $2 a day. And we focused on providing them with loans to start a business savings. So they would have some support insurance. So they would have insurance. And then we, taught them tools to build small businesses. They were really concerned and about having their children have better lives than themselves. And that, that was my experience. I wouldn't give anything for sitting on the ground in a hut in India and meeting with a group of women that were like late twenties, early thirties. And just said, I said, what can we do for you? And this one woman said, you know, my husband, my mother and father, my father-in-law all said, do you, you cannot work. You, it's not permissible. And she said, let me show you my place of business. So we went up two rickety ladders and into an open air kind of market. And there were probably, I don't know, 30 sewing machines. And she was sewing car up, upholstery and selling it faster than she could, could get it out. And she said, see that person? That's my mom, my dad, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, and my husband. And they all work for me. Now give, give me more money because we're getting a return on the investment. We pay our loans back 99% of the time. And so 
that kind of experience I would have never gotten had I stayed put. So, wow. And uh, did she get the money? (laughs) (laughs) She got the money. She got, she got the money. And I have a fabulous picture of her and her beautiful attire. And she, she's remarkable, but I met a, a lot of remarkable people on my journey through opportunity. Um, mm. Yeah, I met so, so many remarkable, resilient women that are thinking of people other than themselves. I met a woman named Beata who, was, who went through the genocide in Rwanda. And she lived next door to neighbors. She was, she was a Tutsi and her neighbors were Hutus. And she had four children and the day of the incident, the day it occurred, she said that her neighbors rushed into her home and they killed her husband with a machete. They cut the baby off her back and it went through her back and they murdered one of her children. And they found her three days later. Her children had hid in the backyard and her mom and dad found her and took her to the hospital. She went through as you can imagine, a year of healing. And then she came to us and asked for a loan and we gave her a loan. And now the last time I saw her, um, which was probably four years ago, she was making jewelry. She had a jewelry business. Her kids were working for her. She had, I don't know, 15 people working for her. So talk about resilience. We think we know it and you know, I think I know a little bit about it, but people who've been through things like that really know what it's like to forgive and to move on and to move forward. And we have to do that. What lessons. Uh, we are we are in such a protected world here, aren't we? It's just amazing to hear those stories and to, to even think about where would our resilience come from? So as you advise and coach and mentor women here, uh, what are the kinds of challenges that you're seeing that they're facing yeah. today? So I, I find that, and I coach a, a lot of different people, both men and women. So I've coached some incredible men that have been very open to listening to, I think they're more comfortable with the female coach But I find that women do not, I coached this wonderful woman who works for a beverage company who has a PhD from MIT. And her CEO called and said, either she's going to be promoted or she will leave this company in the next year because she has no confidence. No, and so I find that women don't, have the confidence they need to have. I find they don't surround themselves with colleagues that can help them, both men and women. And, you know, I mean, I had a lot of mentors that were men because let's face it, there are not enough women to go around to mentor the women that are in executive positions today. So, you know, develop um, your circle that you can go to and share things with. And, you know, coaching is one example of really a confidential relationship wherein they can say things to you that they can't say to other people. I find that women do not understand the value of holding back 
and really stepping forward when they feel strongly about things. I find oftentimes that still in our society today, there is usually one woman in a boardroom that's changing, thankfully, certainly in the state of California, and only you know, one or two females in executive positions. And that is changing because of diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's really changing. And I'm thankful for that. But, but women have not had the history that men have had of hanging together and putting their heads together and having an honest debate with someone and learning that you can have an honest debate and disagree and come to a conclusion together that is better than one or the other. So those are some of the things that I find. Very seldom do I find that women do not want someone to listen to, someone to hold them accountable uh, for changing their behaviors. And they really like accountability and they really like change. And so those are a few things that come to mind that have really worked. A handful of women have been promoted into the C-suite that I've worked with. So, you know, I'm very, very, very happy for them. Really proud of them. One occurred last week from a retailer. So um, those are a few things. Wow. Well, uh, you've shared so many lessons. So are there any, or could you boil them all down into one or two that you want to leave for the audience today, our listeners? So, um, yeah, I would just say, um, so thank you for listening. Um, I hope it's been helpful. Um, I try to be helpful um, always. We need to be helpful to one another. But to boil down two or three things, you know, don't be afraid of failing. I mean, entrepreneurs try out of every 10 things that they try, they fail at seven. So three out of 10 things are actually successful. So success means failing. You've got to fall down and get up. So don't, don't be afraid of it. You know, just let it roll off your back and just jump right back into the pool and get in there and, you know, get to the top. So that, that's the first thing I would say. I would say, do not be afraid of moving around. I mean, I, again, I had 15 jobs at Delta. So don't be afraid to move. Moving is great. Move where you don't know anything. Surround yourself with a great team. Surround yourself with really good strategy. And then develop goals and hold your team accountable. Do not micromanage. Do not micromanage great teams. You know, high-performing teams will not stay with leaders that micromanage them. And so I've been fortunate. Not all my teams have been high-performing. I mean, I've had some teams that did not perform well. And, you know, I found ways of moving them out and or over. But um, high-performing teams just won't be micromanaged. So it's, it's not that difficult. It is finding the right team, getting a great strategy, you know, getting goals that you hold them accountable to and then letting them loose. So those are the things that I would say to the audience today. And, you know, along the way, have fun. I mean, life is all about that middle ground. So relax, inhale this 
wonderful life we're living and you know just have some fun along the way with your family and your friends take time oh here's a big one take time for yourself women are not very good at taking time for themselves you know you can take a conference call on a walk outside it's a beautiful day we could have done this outside but take time for yourself because life is fleeting and it goes by fast. We know that. And we've been friends for 30, over 35 years. Well, you didn't have to, have to say that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been friends for a long time. Yeah, we have. Yes. I'm, I'm yeah. And you've still looked the same. So, <laughs> but life is fleeting and, you know, every day is another opportunity to make a difference. So that's what I'd leave the audience with. Um, it's, it's fabulous seeing you, Anne. You know, I will look forward to one of, on one of my visits to Atlanta on looking you up and, you know, having a glass of wine or a cup of coffee. Well, Vicki, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. And thank you so much because I know you've got important meetings ahead of you. And, uh, but thank you for carving out this, this uh, short period of time to, to be with us here at TurkNet and with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A real and pleasure. And I wish you the very best. Thank you.